and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller. I'm your host and interviewer each week, and we're well into entering nearly our fifth year of consistent, unique interviews each week where we highlight Franklin Covey's spotlight as the world's most trusted leadership company on people who we think have something to add to the leadership conversation. Some weeks it's best-selling authors. Other weeks it's business titans. Some weeks it's researchers or celebrities. Other weeks it's people who perhaps don't have household fame or even name recognition. But through their own trauma or tribulation or research, they've brought to the conversation something that we think is valuable. One of the hallmarks of our founder's work, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, was this idea of having an abundance mentality. Although we love your business as a leadership client, we don't claim to know everything, so we like to very much provide this platform, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast for others to come on and share their own insights and research. And every year, I am also privileged as an author for HarperCollins to write a book called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where I take that platform, kind of chicken soup for the soul-ish, and shine our spotlight onto 30 of my favorite guests that year and one different insight from them. Volume 2 with 30 new mentors and 30 insights is available now on all bookstores, and I'm on my way to writing 10 volumes in the Master Mentor series, and who knows, maybe today's guest might agree to appear in volume four or five. He is the author that everyone has come to know and love, Dr. Robert Cialdini. His most recent book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, is 4,000 pages thick. I'm kidding, no. It's actually a masterpiece. Great stories, research, data, and real-life examples of how all of us can become not just more influential, but understand and apply the psychology of persuasion. Dr. Cialdini, welcome to On Leadership. Well, thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be with you and uh, your visitors. Hey, I appreciate you joining us. Our millions of listeners and viewers will be most attuned today to understand just, in fact, what is the psychology of persuasion. Um, Bob, you've invited me to call you Bob. You are an eminent scholar and researcher and author in the space of persuasion psychology and how to become more influential. You might argue it is everyone's goal professionally and personally, to become more influential. As a parent, which I am, of three young boys, and as a leader of my own company, and also here in Franklin Covey, all of us are looking for uh, better influence. Talk a bit about how you got here. What led you to have such passion around this topic? All my life, I've been a sucker. All my life. Uh, a, a, a mark, an easy mark for various kinds of salespeople or charity organizations who would come to my door <laughs> and I would find myself in unwanted possession of, uh, of, of uh, magazine subscriptions or giving to causes I'd never heard of. And I remember thinking to myself after one of those, well, isn't this interesting? It wasn't the merits of the thing that got me to say yes. It was how those merits were presented to me. It was the psychology of the delivery of the case that people were making that engaged me in some sort of psychological fashion that got me to uh, comply with their requests. And I thought, well, that's worth studying. People would be interested in knowing what the factors are that incline people toward assent when they are presented with some kind of offer or appeal. 
So Bob, whether someone professionally has a career in sales, sales leadership, marketing, public relations, advertising, project management, executing strategy, all of us are in sales, right? All of us are constantly presenting ideas in the hopes to influence others, to galvanize around them, to come to some action. What are the most counterintuitive things that even the most well-intended among us don't realize? We tend to do this, but we should be doing that. We say this, but we probably should say that. Are there some overarching things you've learned that anyone could apply pretty immediately in their role? Yeah, I would say um, two things. One is um, never have a favorite influence strategy or approach because situations change, populations change, audiences change, times change. You have to use the principle of influence that's there in the situation waiting to be employed rather than forcing the same one into all kinds of situations. I had a friend, a marketing professor who set out to find the single most effective marketing strategy. Right? And I saw him at a conference. He said, I, I found it. Bob, I found it. The single most effective marketing strategy is not to have a single marketing strategy. It's a fool's game. So always base your approach on what you see in the situation waiting to be employed and that is and available to you. That makes it ethical as well as effective because you don't have to trick anybody. You just point to something that's there in the situation. Its engine is running and you make sure people are aware of it and they get uh, to move ahead uh, and benefit from something that's truly advising them correctly in that situation. Bob, this is perhaps a broad question, but are there, are there um, consistent situations, circumstances, where you think people could employ some of the ideas we'll talk about today in this call that are, that are you know, disproportionately common or frequent in our lives? Absolutely. So for example, here's, a, here's one that uh, new research shows that if you're in a situation where you have a new initiative, uh, a new idea, a new program, and you want to get buy-in for it from your colleagues before you advance it up the, the ladder or uh, try to uh, enact it, you want to get buy-in first. What you often do is you check with uh, your colleagues, you give them a um, a summary of it or a blueprint or uh, a, a, you know some kind of an outline of your idea. And then you say, uh, can you give me your opinion on this? Getting input is exactly the right thing to do, but you should never ask for someone's opinion because when you ask for an opinion, you get a critic who's going to go inside him or herself and look for flaws and uh, come back at you with those uh, misgivings. If instead you change one word and you ask for advice, you get a partner. You get somebody who is aligned with you in this effort, is together with you in moving this idea forward. And the research shows not only do you get more positivity for your idea when you use the word advice as opposed to opinion, 
you get better input from them because it's theirs. It's theirs. You've asked for advice as a as a partner here. And uh, so that's one small thing, for example, that you can do that you often have to uh, arrange for is getting uh, getting buy in from uh, conf- uh, from colleagues or um, even uh, superiors before you launch. Bob, that is supremely applicable. Take that further. Like I could actually see myself now fundamentally moving out of that conversation. What's your opinion versus just changing the word? What's your advice? Can you give us some other situations, maybe professionally, where people perhaps are trying to build a coalition, build political buy-in for a project or an initiative? Are there other words you suggest we pivot from or other emotions? What does the research show other things we can do to actually employ that psychology of persuasion? So one thing you can do, especially with people who are very well um, they think very well of themselves. Let's say people high in the uh, the, the hierarchy, you, you want to get them on, on your side. And the thing about people at the top is that they don't take the counsel of others easily. They've come to their uh, exalted positions as a result of taking their own counsel. And they, they resist being influenced from others. Uh, they'd rather look inside and judge what to do based on their own expectations, their own opinions, their own standards, and so on. So what do you do under those circumstances? If they're the only people they, you, they listen to and you can't persuade, persuade them, you show them how in their histories they have said or done or committed to something that is aligned with what you are suggesting. You know that it, when, what you wrote in the shareholders report on page six or that speech that you gave the other day about transparency or uh, diversity or ethics or whatever it is that you want to, to uh, advance, uh, employee choice, whatever it would be. You say, I'm so glad that you feel this way because it is exactly how, what I think too. And I was happy to see you say, so what you're doing is you are not persuading them. You are allowing them to persuade themselves on the basis of what, on the basis of what they have said or done previously. You just have to harvest that, bring it to the surface. And now you've got a lever for influence that you didn't have before, but it was there in the situation, again, waiting for you to employ. You just had to point to it, and now um, you've engaged the, uh, the power of that situation. I mean, in essence, you could argue you're just reminding them of their position, of their previous declaration. Bob, are there times when these persuasion techniques and tactics that are rich in the book, I strongly encourage every listener and viewer to uh, start to delve into this book, are there, are there, is there a distinguishing aspect between these tactics and being manipulative? And actually, yes, there is. Uh, yeah, That's really a that. bullseye question, Scott, because it's always concerned me. These principles are dynamite. But just because they are powerful doesn't mean you're entitled to use them powerfully if you do so in an unethical uh, fashion. So 
The key is, once again, to know what these principles are, and I say there are seven of them, uh, universal principles of persuasion. And the key is to uncover the one or, or another that's there in the situation already. If you have um, evidence of uh, authority testimonials that your your idea, your product, your service, you point, you bring those to the surface. If you've got popularity, we're the, you know, we're the number one uh, market share, or uh, a lot of other companies are doing what I'm suggesting that we do inside our organization as a leader, you, you point to those things, whatever it is, or there's a dwindling amount of the uh, availability of um, making this idea work. We've only got uh, a certain uh, amount of time, a window. Those are all principles of influence. Right? You point to the one that's true in there. You lift it in consciousness in the minds of your audience so that it is influenced by education <laughs> you're you're informing people into yes rather than coercing or tricking uh, pushing or pulling them in those are all manipulative strategies and uh, just informing them into assent is not only effective it's ethical bob let's talk about sales people people whose careers are aligned to selling a product or service. They have quarterly, monthly, annual goals. They're commission-based. They're the lifeblood of every organization. Nothing happens until someone sells something. That's different from the idea that all of us are in sales, which everybody is in sales, but there are yeah. salespeople right. whose livelihoods are based on it. What advice would you give people listening today who are thinking about a sales career or who have a sales career on some of the ethical ways they can apply the psychology of persuasion to make sure that they both meet their goal, but that what they're selling to their client also meets their client's goal. Yeah, so again, I, I'm gonna hark back to the idea of uh, finding something that's absolutely true that will counsel your, your client correctly and uncovering it for them in a way that they may not have seen before. Um, that is the way to build not only effectiveness, but you build relationships that way. You get people to say, oh, well, Scott really knows the business because he was able to point to things I didn't recognize that steer me in a positive direction. Bob, you write a lot about reciprocation in the book. And in many ways, sales is about, you know, if you buy this, then you'll get this. And most of us are hopefully in the business of providing reciprocal value for people, whether it be relationships or network, whatever it is. Uh, share with us what you want us to know about this principle of reciprocation. The principle says, we say yes to those we owe. Can you see the implication of that? It means we have to go first. It's not the typical business exchange model that says, oh, if you purchase my product, I I promise you will get great uh, outcomes. Or if you will uh, sign this contract or uh, agree with me on this, we will be able to take, that's always asking them to go first. We go first, we give benefits, advantages, information to them that helps them achieve their goals 
And by the rule of reciprocation, they will give back to us when we need and request something. I always say, you know, when you go into a room of people and you, you want to be influential, the question you shouldn't ask is, who can most help me here? It should be, whom can I most help here? That person will then be your advocate. That person will feel a sense of obligation to give back in return by virtue of this rule that says we are obligated to give back to others what we have received from them. I just saw a pair of studies that showed that managers, right, who are perceived as supporting their employees get more um, work and better work from their employees, get more voluntary commitments to things like corporate responsibility activities or safety activities. And the reason is not that, oh, I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling good. It's that they feel obligated, the employees feel obligated to their manager or leader for providing them with something first that helps them to do their job better. Well, we hear so much these days about authenticity, about authenticity being a leadership trait, even maybe even a leadership competency. Do you, to an extent, feel like some of these techniques, tactics, are at odds with this uh, push towards being our authentic self? No, not Again, not if you're honest and simply pointing to things that are there in the situation yeah. that you're able to explain or uncover for people. Uh, but uh, one thing that helps with the sense of um, with the sense of uh, authenticity is uh, admitting to weaknesses in your case early on, because that establishes you as a credible source of information for everything you say next. Right? So, if you point to something that's a drawback or a weakness. And a lot of people already know that, but they don't know that you're honest enough to say so, right? You're not just your ordinary kind of deal maker. You're somebody who's giving them the, the truth. That lends itself to compliance down the road for the things that you would like them to do uh, because you are now seen as a trustworthy source of information, right? I, 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 I resonated to something you said at the outset that Franklin Covey is um, seen as the, the brand, the, the leadership organization with the greatest trust. That's brilliant. To have that as your brand, the trustworthy source about leadership, information and practices and so on you know there's a i saw an article in uh, a, a journal uh psycho a psychological journal where they rated the most positively regarded uh words in the english language you know what was the number one adjective that was rated 
highest trustworthy. Trustworthy. Higher than intelligent. Higher than kind. It, trustworthy was at the top. And one of the things you can do is to come up, up front, mention a weakness, and then bridge by saying, but, or however, or at the same time, bridge to your strengths. And people are now listening to and processing the strengths of your case like never before. Bob, I'm so glad that you shared that because I think there's great uh, refreshment, if you will, in the vulnerability of recognizing that your case may not be ironclad. There are obvious issues with it. Not every case or product or service or tool or business plan is ironclad. You know, it's something I employ in my own life. I'm a stutterer. I've had a lifelong speech impediment. Decades of speech pathology, speech therapy, braces four times, headgear, retainers, Invisalign. I have two speech coaches, but yet I host the world's largest leadership podcast now and speak and write for a living. And oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes when I'm in a certain city or a certain day and my, and my stutter is more pronounced, usually in the winter when it's cold than it is in the summer, the winter greatly exacerbates my speech impediment. I will open my speech by saying, you know, I'm a stutter and there's, you know, 60 words that I can't say in public. And so if I use a word that is a little bit awkward, it's because I'm trying to pick something up to replace a word that I know I can't say in your presence. And I don't use that as a manipulation tactic. I use it as just to kind of call out. I'm probably yeah. going to stutter on a few words. I'm going to say a few kooky yeah. words that are replacement words, but pre-forgive me. And inevitably, I find my stutter goes down because you know, a lot of stuttering is, can be psychological, but also the line of people that comes up to me afterwards talking about their speech impediment or their issue or some other issue, I don't do it to manipulate anyone. I do it to kind of set the stage for, hey, you're going to see me say some things that don't make sense, so maybe pre-forgive me. You've really reinforced that principle even when we're in a meeting with our boss where we're presenting something, right. how wise it is to recognize this, this, and this are either still in discussion or this may not be right yet with a client. You're going to yes. exponentiate your trustworthiness with that person. You know who does this better than anybody I know is Warren Buffett. Hmm. Uh, if you look at the first or second page of his annual letter to his uh, shareholders, he always begins by mentioning something that went south that year, something that was a mistake. And then he says, but we've learned from that. That will never happen again, right? Now, let me tell you what went right. And I've been getting their uh, annual letters for a couple of decades now. And Scott, every time I say to myself, wow, this guy's being straight with me. What else is he going to say? And he, and I say that to myself just before he launches into the strengths, the way he's got it configured. He begins by saying, we flubbed this, but here's what we did right. And now he's primed me to be focused and concentrated on the strengths that he's now going to present. Bob, just how many Berkshire shares do you own? I mean, after all, I'm well, kidding. I, that's not, I'm kidding. Well, let me tell you about the first one because <laughs> it has to do with this principle of reciprocity. One day, it's couple, like 
20, more than 20 years ago, I went to my office and there was a big uh, uh, envelope and it was a single share of Berkshire Hathaway stock, a, a share, from Charlie Munger. And he said, your book has made us so much money. I thought you deserve something in return. Here's a share of Berkshire stock. Now, it was about $70,000 a share at that time. Wow. It's now $420,000, something like that a share. But it's not, that's not the only thing that that share gave me. It gave me access to Warren Buffett's annual reports right. where I could see how he presents his case in a way that is so compelling. This guy isn't just a brilliant financial investor. He's a brilliant communicator of the fact that he's a brilliant financial investor. And we just talked about one. He mentions a weakness, makes you say, oh, this guy's honest. What's the next thing he's going to say? And that's where the strengths go. I'm going to ship you all six of my books in the hopes that one changes your life in exchange for a third of a share. <laughs> okay, let's talk about uh, surprises. Your book is extraordinarily well-researched, documented. Heck, the appendix is almost as big as the book itself because you do a really fine job of making sure all of your research is um, annotated and supported. Uh, what part of the data most surprised you around the psychology of persuasion? What were some things that were the opposite of what you've always thought or done or thought you should be doing? What surprised you the yeah. most? I, I, what surprised me the most in this new edition of Influence is the one that just came out. Yeah. Uh, uh, the previous one came out a long time ago. But what I learned is that Influence Online is surprisingly similar to influence that occurs in everyday situations. We've, we've developed this new technology that didn't even exist when I wrote the first edition of the book. Right? It's the same principles of influence that determine whether people can, are, are uh, converted from a visitor to a site to a purchaser right? on that site. I saw an article, they did 6,700 commercial websites. And they looked at the features of those sites, the factors in those sites that most led to a conversion, right? From visitor to uh, purchaser. And they looked at things like, um, is, there, uh, uh, is there a technological thing where you you uh, can uh, move around within the site. Uh, is there a psychological thing like uh, uh, a call to action line? Uh, is there an economic thing like free delivery? Right? They looked at all these kinds of things. 29 of them, I think there were. The top seven were the seven principles of influence in my book. Huh. And you know what was at the top? scarcity the idea that if you don't move now you will lose there will be a loss that you will incur because there's a limited time or a limited number or we have a unique opportunity you can only get here or that there's a, a, a window uh, that is closing 
it was those appeals that won the day online, just the way they do in everyday other medium, uh, media, media uh, 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 face-to-face, uh, phone calls, uh, written letters, and so Same thing. Here's the one I was most surprised by. Online, how do you get the liking principle to work that says people prefer to purchase from others they like? Well, online, you don't know that other person very well, right? So here's what they found as uh, something that successfully converted uh, visitors to uh, purchasers. If there was a welcoming letter at the be- on the landing page, the way you welcome someone into your home. I'm glad that you're with us. And so, uh, and so pleased with the fact that we might be able to work together. Come on in. How many websites have you seen with a welcoming letter as uh, on the landing page? A few, I've seen a few, but it worked enough to get it to be one of the top uh, producers, that feature of conversions. Bob, your book is a masterpiece. I'm riveted listening to you. Our time is tight. This particular book has sold over five million copies. You've now become synonymous with the topic of persuasion and influence. You speak, you teach, you coach, you write. What's next for you? We're, we're building um, an online, on-demand workshop where people can come to our, um, our organization and get uh, trained, essentially, along with coaches that we have um, that we're building into it. In the, in the effectiveness and the ethics of the influence process so that they will become not only successful, they'll feel good about themselves in the process. Bob, the book may look daunting because it's thick. Again, half of it is just annotations and research to prove your writings and suggestions. I strongly recommend this book as actually a, like a book club inside organizations that have teams and such. If you want to buy copies for your team and read it, you know, a chapter a week, you're going to dramatically change the way you speak and think and act and behave with others, both inside and outside your organization. Dr. Robert Cialdini, the book is Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. Thank you for taking a valuable half an hour today and investing in all of our listeners and viewers. We'd love to have you come back and share more of your insights. Well, I enjoyed it, Scott. Thank you, Bob. Nice meeting you, and thank you for your friendship. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.